This is The Balanced Dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma, managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? Today's guest is Beth Robbins, and Beth is a writer, actor, teacher, and director, and she's also a widow. Her first book, A Grief Sublime, was published in 2019, and it's a work of creative nonfiction regarding her husband's death in a car accident. In the book, she recalls her personal journey navigating life, grief, and healing in sudden widowhood. And some of you may even recognize the story of her late husband, Steve Meyerowitz, known as the Sprout Man. Beth lives in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts with her youngest son and her two cats. She's been a high school English and drama teacher at the Berkshire Waldorf High School for the last 15 years, offering workshops and events also around her book. And she's currently at work on her second novel. Welcome to The Balanced Dilemma, Beth. Thank you very much for having me. So, Beth, we'd like to start a little bit with your personal story. Um, tell us about your education and upbringing. My education, um, I, um, you mean going back to college or? Well, let's, how did we get to the Beth we have today? Did you, uh, <laughs> what were your goals when you were a child? How did education oh, okay. factor in that? Things like that. Okay. Um, I grew up on Long Island and I was, I always wanted to be uh, a writer and an actor, uh, an actress, a comedian. And both of those desires were set aside as I got older. Um, although I did major in English, I went to Barnard uh, College and majored in English. And it was in, um, it was in New York City that I met Steve um, when I was in college because I had attended a, um, a lecture on Gandhi, on nonviolent civil disobedience, and I decided basically in the lecture that I would become a vegetarian at that moment. And this was in the early 80s, and there weren't the same kind of food options that there are now. And also I grew up a, a really big hamburger and lamb chop lover. So I really didn't know what I was eating, and, um, and I was really at a loss. I mean, a complete loss. And this is how this impulsive decision on my part was how I ended up meeting Steve. So what made you think, what about it was a, about a Gandhi lecture turned you into a vegetarian and put you on another path? Well, I realized as I'm getting older that I seem to make sudden changes. Um, I make quick pivots in my life. Um, and I seem to trust my instincts more than I realized when I was younger. Um, I was very, very inspired by the professor and the, the whole idea of um, respect for all life and for um, yeah, a life of kindness, a life of care for, for one another, for every living creature. It spoke very deeply to me. I, I mean, even growing up on Long Island, I felt um, a little bit, actually I felt quite out of place. Um, I was always seeking some kind of truth, um, some kind of a connection with things. And when I heard this lecture on Gandhi, 
Uh, it just, it just, I just, it just felt absolutely right. I mean, I got active politically. I went to protests. I learned how to, to protest nonviolently. Um, so that's really, that's really how that happened. Did it also affect your career or education trajectory at that time? That's very, this is very interesting. Um, well, yeah, I, I think it did in, in a certain way because I, I had started off thinking I would be a journalist and then I studied, um, then I moved more toward English lit. Um, and, and instead of continuing on to some sort of grad school at that point, I ended up not. Um, I ended up, well, I was with Steve. I had just actually started dating Steve um, when I graduated. I'm trying to remember. I think I just had started dating him when I graduated college. And um, I was just, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was going to do. What it did is it, it basically had me question my assumptions up to that point. So in that way, yeah, it did affect it. Did you also have... Uh, an idea that you wanted a family and children and to be married. Was that a goal or was that something you assumed would happen or you really were going to see what happened? Well, I, I didn't, I, I, it was really more, I would see what would happen. I think that I, I, there was, it was a, a quiet assumption that I would get married, but it wasn't something that I was necessarily seeking. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't like to be pigeonholed and told what I had to do. And so I remember, I mean, when I was growing up, um, getting older now, I guess. I'm we all are. In the, in the, in the 70s, um, we had to take home ec. If, if you were female, you had to take home ec. And if you were male, you got to take shop. And I protested and said, I, I refuse to take home ec. So I, I and I, I don't and I refuse to ever learn to sew. These were these were decisions which are kind of super. They're they were kind of silly in a certain way, but it was my way of saying I didn't want to be the traditional kind of woman that I was being groomed to become. Early predictors. Now, uh, you know, Maura, I wanted to jump to. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Beth when we studied in Oxford this summer. And uh, you shared with me this book that you wrote, um, A Grief Sublime, which is about a sensitive uh, subject. And um, you were married to Stephen, uh, a marriage of long duration. And the book right. opens with police lights in the driveway and you not wanting to open the door. Um, mm -hmm. It's very compelling the way that the book unfolds and the reader can really feel how you must have felt. And I wanted to quote uh, from you in the book. You said after uh, the police shared with you the terrifying news of what had happened with your husband, you said the only person I wanted to call is the one person I cannot. And as a reader, you really could feel that. Um, Tell us, uh, when did the colonel start to uh, take this book on? Did it Was it an outgrowth or was it a, a destination and a plan that you had? Very, well, um, it, it's, the book is actually connected with Breadloaf, which is where we met. Um, and I, I went for, I had gotten two master, master's degrees through Breadloaf School of English. Um, and so I had been, I had been developing my writing through Breadloaf. I started to discover that I 
could write in the way that I had wanted to write, which surprised me because I had judged myself really harshly and felt I could not write what I wanted to write. Um, Anyway, when Steve died, a friend of mine told me to keep um, a journal, and and I did. Um, I, I just took it as a homework assignment in a way, and I started to just keep, I wrote everything down. Um, I wrote to Steve. I I wrote dreams that I was having. Um, I wrote the dreams that our three children were telling me that they were having. Um, I was able to be completely raw and express everything I was feeling in this journal. And I ended up with hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I, I didn't know I was going to do anything with it until the sum I spent the first time I was in Oxford studying I took a course and I was so it was the summer after Steve died so it was less than a year after he had died and I had asked my professor if I could uh, have more of a creative engagement with the works that we were studying and it was 19th century literature which is my favorite era of and uh, what I I started to realize that my engagement with the poets and the authors that I loved so much was the thing that was actually starting to allow me to move through the shock of grief. Well, can we go Most, back to the yeah. shock a little bit? Because yeah. the police lights in the driveway, you talk about not wanting to open the door. Most of us, right. I think would run to the door and you go back and forth should I open the door or not almost hiding from it can you tell us about that it's like you sense something yeah I I well he was he was hours late uh, getting home that night and it and I had been trying to reach him texting and calling and I couldn't reach him and so I was getting worried but I didn't know what to do and he sometimes ran late, so I wasn't immediately um, worried. But when the police car pulled in, I did, it, it just, yeah, it's, it's as if I knew. And I did, I do remember reading in Joan Didion's book, um, The Year of Magical Thinking, that she referred to um, an experience that she had heard about where, excuse me, um, a woman who's either a son or a husband was killed, a soldier, and when the, the other um when the people came to tell her about it, she saw them and she didn't want to open the door. I just felt that if I a woman's sense and with Beth, we'll be right back. We're going to take a break. And this is the balance dilemma. You're listening to the balance dilemma. We're speaking with Beth Robbins about a grief sublime. Beth, there appears to be at least from the book, the Beth before your husband's death and the Beth after, are we reading it correctly? And if so, what's the difference between the two? Oh boy! Uh, I, I, yeah, there, there's a, there's a difference, but I would say it's more. Yeah, there is a difference. What is the difference? Um, I'm more grateful for everything in my life. I'm more awake to what life is and how precious it is. Um, I seem to be more interested in doing things that I wasn't interested in doing before. Um, and I'm also realizing that I need to get after things. That well, life is, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Let me ask you this. And I'm surmising it wasn't 100% clear in the book, but it almost sounds like 
Steve put you on a path as opposed to you choosing your path. Is that yeah. accurate? I, I, I would, yeah, I would say, I would say, but I would spin it a little bit differently, which is that he offered me um, a path. And I just, I was really crazy about him when we married. He was older than me, and I just was very taken by him and the way he seemed to live his life. Because he didn't I, yeah. live a traditional life, right? No. That's correct. And, and what, why don't you tell us about that? Because I, so our audience understands. Sproutman, tell right, us who, who this uh, famous guy was <laughs> in his own right. circle. Yeah, right. No, he, he was he was pretty. He, he was renowned within his circle, which was the health field. And, and back in the 70s is when he really discovered sprouting and raw foods and juicing. And he became a pioneer in that field. Um, and he invented all kinds of growing devices and cooking with sprouts. But also Steve was um, an entertainer. He had started off as a, he he created his own vaudeville show. He was an amazing piano player. He played by ear. He wrote music. He did a lot of things. And we, he, he created this business called the Sprout, the Sprout House. And he was known as the Sprout Man. And yeah, we did things a little bit differently. Um, And he, he was the kind of guy that basically took care of everything and was honestly one of the kindest, gentlest souls you'd ever meet. I mean, really, a really, really good man. And your children, yeah. you know, we we launched right in without getting a little background. You have three children. And correct. at the time of Steve's death, you still had one in high school. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Noah was 16. And... Yeah. As we sit here today, do uh, some of your children still work in uh, Steve's business? Did they carry on the legacy? Well, Noah and Ari, um, Ari was 25 at the time. The two of them <clears throat> took over the business. And for the first years, um, I don't know how many years, they basically carried on what Steve had created. But they've since really relaunched it, reimagined it. And they have uh, a really successful business right now, which, yeah, is a legacy business of Steve's, but it's completely theirs now, and it's called Sproutman. And um, they have, yeah, big presence online. This this brings us to another uh, topic of work, and it sounds like a work, a company, a family business, you know, helped your two sons after this tragedy. You also mm-hmm. had a job outside the home at the time of this mm-hmm. tragedy, and you went back to work a few weeks after. D- did right. did work carry you forward? How did work factor into your uh, recovery from this tragedy? Um, absolutely carried me forward. I had an amazingly supportive community, the Waldorf School that I teach, um, and I was teaching at the time transcendentalists and so I was talking about Emerson and Thoreau with my students and it was um, I I had to set aside my own grief to be present for the students and I realized that one of the keys for me in not falling into despair and despondency was to be aware of other people to care for other people whether it be my children or the children that I was teaching now, although your book is uh, reads like a memoir of you know love to your marriage and and what you were going through after the experience, you also get to what I'll call the legal chapter, and uh, you were 
put in this situation without any notice, and right. you t- you give several pages of uh, a list of things that you had to deal with in the, this unexpected tragedy. Now, mm-hmm. would you, um, if you had to speak to your earlier self, do you think, do you wish you had prepared for things a little bit better, or is it just better to live life and laissez-faire and, you know, have to deal with things as they as they come? What, what do you think? I think there has to be some preparation for sure. I mean... Um, Were fact, you prepared? Fact, no. I mean, inward, emotionally, I didn't think he was... I, I mean, this is so silly to say, but so naive, but I didn't think Steve would ever die. And so, but he did have a will. Um, he did have a life insurance policy, which was hugely helpful I, I mean that was that was a godsend to have the life insurance policy because he was the main um, earner had you um, known of this beforehand or did you only discover yeah. it after no 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 I knew about it what I didn't know was how he was a sole he had his business was a sole proprietorship and so I didn't know how to deal with that and he hadn't authorized he was starting to um, think about bringing up someone else in to be able to sign things, whether it would be me or one of our children. But luckily, um, our son Noah, the younger one, was very interested in the business and knew really just about everything, which was... You're talking about a 16-year-old, right? I was just going to say that. (laughs) Yes. No, he knew. Really, we would go to the lawyer's office and Noah knew. He knew everything. He knew the passwords. He knew... Yeah, he knew it. But you, you do give in your list here on, on page 54 of your book, um, uh-huh. you know, getting a power of attorney, uh, right. death certificates. People don't realize they need multiple copies. Going to Social Correct. Security. And I had shared uh-huh. a story with more of a young widow I knew who didn't even know that she could have gotten benefits for a minor child. And the money that she gets has changed her life, allowed her to get training, yeah. a new job. People don't even know this. And mm-hmm. um, aside, you know, keep a case of tissues you, you mentioned and you need lots of tissues. But you give some things that you learned. And so if you could give advice to other people, should we all be thinking a little bit in preparation? Both sides. It could be either partner that passes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's all kinds of the the social security benefits were completely surprising to me. And had a friend, had people not told me that I could do this, I wouldn't have known that that Noah was entitled to benefits um, because he was a minor. Let alone the fact that I was also entitled, even though I was young, I was entitled to widow's benefits, which wouldn't impact my Social Security um, because I could get Steve's. And I assume that that gave you a measure of security so that you you could deal with all the things that you had to deal with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say more more than that, though, honestly, was the the life insurance because that was a a chunk of money that came in and that just and, and it's meant to help you live. And it did. Well, yes, these are all the the unsexy things that are important to plan for. And with that, we're going to take a break. This is The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Beth Robbins about her book, A Grief Sublime. And I want to turn to grief itself. Is there anything one could do to prepare themselves for the grief of losing a spouse, particularly when it's unexpected? Partly, I would say no, because... Because there is, it's, it, there is no way to be prepared for what happens. Um, but what I would say, on the other hand, is that being open to other people, being open to whatever it is they can offer, um, a community, if any kind of a community that can support was immensely um, help, 
helpful. It really, I feel, saved saved me, saved us. I mean, reading the book, it sounded as though you were really surrounded by people, like, enveloped by them, particularly at the beginning. Is that, is that fair? It is fair. I mean, Steve had an amazing, we had really a thousand people at his funeral, and I would say that a good, good number of them kept, they kept showing up. They kept showing up. One of the things you said in the book, and I'm going to quote, is, I begin to learn how to become the hero of my life. What Mm -hmm. did you mean by that? And you weren't before? I I think that um, I wasn't stepping into my own, I think this is a little bit of a cliche, but stepping into my own power in the way that I had to do after Steve died. I mean, just even writing the book, the book, the whole idea of writing the book was to somehow honor Steve, tell people who Steve was. I was really wanting to somehow create some sort of a monument to him. But as I began to write, I realized that actually I was telling my own story because his story for him had ended. How he impacted me, of course, was still relevant, but I needed to, to discover who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. But had you felt myself. before yeah. uh, Steve's death, had you sensed that you'd lost some of yourself in your marriage or? Uh, no, 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 it wasn't. that. It was, and in fact, for he, I would say Steve, I said that he saved me. I, I think at one point in the book when we met and I think he really did. He, he allowed me to, to become myself as much as I did up until he died. And then it was almost like a pass off. It's a little coarse, but it's like, okay, now you do it. You got it. Well, you also in the book, and if again, if I'm reading it correctly, intimate that as with many long marriages, it's not all roses and champagne and that perhaps there were regrets about things that went on in the later years mm-hmm. of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, yeah, it was, we had, we lived very parallel lives. I mean, one of my biggest regrets after he died was how much I took him for granted and for how long. And I don't know that he, he might, he probably did me as well. Um, we created a really uh, good family, but we, and, but we left, we led very different lives. Um, but he, but both of us, where we were good for one another was, was in the way we supported one another to become our best selves sadly it was was out of the marriage a lot of the time um but but it did come around at the end which which i think is important there's a word you use a lot in the book liminal yep (laughs) which to me is sort of on the threshold using threshold rather than precipice can you describe what you mean and maybe even the difference between those two words since you are a word person Mm mm-hmm the, the word liminal, liminal is, goes back to the romantic poets, and it's a transitional space. So you're moving between two spaces. And so when I say I'm in the liminal realm, it's really the realm of the imaginative. Um, and it's where you're not, where you haven't, full, you've left, but yet you haven't arrived. And I think for a, a threshold is more, well, for me, it would be more sort of standing on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and um, that doesn't, just doesn't that was a little bit um, so was that the space between Steve being alive and Steve not being alive for you is that the liminal yeah yeah that would be the liminal space yep the space where you had to learn to let's say sleep alone or manage everything on your own and finish raising the children alone 
and figure out who you were and wanted to be going forward? Um, yeah, I would say that, but I would also say that it's, it was the space where I would sit and write for hours um, late at night or early in the morning and where I was able to kind of dialogue with Steve um, in my journal. So I felt connected with him in that space. So this brings me to um, this concept of spirituality that I sensed in your book. And you you did touch upon the uh, comfort you felt in the Jewish rituals that you might have taken for granted as a a young Hebrew school student. But there's also spiritual and astrological because Steve had uh, a belief and that dictated Mm -hmm. the date of your marriage well before these events. But tell Mm -hmm. us how spirituality um, factored into your recovery period and how you relied upon that. Well, I experienced experienced Steve as present um, in a way, not not as if he were sitting, not as if I could see him, you know, look uh, next to me on the couch, but I, I experienced his presence and his comfort. It was almost an energetic feeling. Um, I, I had incredibly vivid dreams where I never had dreamed. Um, all of our children did, um, and we, we, we felt in touch with Steve through sleeping, um, through our dreams. And by being, and also I just felt gifted, and I write about this, um, it's hard to speak about because it's not ordinary life or ordinary vision, but I almost felt that I was being um, shown things through him. Um, And so there were moments where I was just absolutely incredibly uh, joyful, just filled with bliss um, when I could access that. And then, of course, there were the moments of absolute utter despair. Have you spoken with other widows, widowers, or people who've suffered great losses where they've experienced the same thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. I have. I have. Interesting. And yeah. you did explain your failure at traditional therapy as a means of support, <laughs> but you did find uh, support with a tarot card reader. Please tell us right. tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, she she was yeah she was a uh, more of a spiritual counselor, and I was surprised. I didn't know I wasn't looking for that, but she um, she was able to somehow just connect with me on a level that res- that spoke to me. The the therapist I'm sure was very good, the the traditional one, but she did not. She was I felt anyway was kind of humoring me that I was experiencing him. But also use this um, term. She kept telling me I had been robbed, and um, I can I understand intellectually why someone would say that when there's a sudden death. But I didn't feel that that was that wasn't the way I was approaching this. Had you been into the spiritualism or you know been more open to these things before Steve's death? Like, was this part of your life before? Yes. Yeah, but in, in a particular way. I, I, so I teach at a Waldorf school, and um, there's, yeah, it's, yeah, I've been on a quest my whole life. But but not really, yeah, that's all I'll say, yeah. Now, tell us about this sweat lodge and the howling, which helped with this anger and grief release. That, oh what, how did the sweat lodge come I mean, is come that about? scream therapy? <laughs> well, that was, that was pretty wild. You had asked earlier if there were things I had done after Steve's death and I wouldn't have done before. This was one of them because I was not 
a person who was going to sweat lodges or, you know, or encounter groups or I didn't even know. Um, I, I, I never did yoga or any of that. Um, but anyway, I felt really driven to, to go to this retreat in Mexico, really driven. And so I did. A, a friend of mine was leading it, and she was just wonderful and very supportive, very loving. And we went into the final night of this retreat was in a sweat lodge. And um, I, to me, it was horrific. I mean, <laughs> but but I think maybe ultimately healing. I don't know. Um, what is a sweat I, lodge? I, I'm making assumptions. What is that? <laughs> Well, it's a, there, it's a, there's a ritual. So there, it's a sacred ceremony with different herbs, and you go through different, um, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's cycles is the right word, but there are different steps in it, and the, the, the person who's leading the, the ritual is, a, is, is um, uh, a shaman, I guess. And this was all new to me. Um, but but what, what it is is there's no light, and it becomes incre- increasingly hot, and there's a there's strong um, odor smells because of all the different herbs. So your senses are heightened. We're going to take mm-hmm. a break on this. We'll be right back. This is the balanced dilemma. We're speaking with Beth Robbins. Before we continue our discussion, Christy, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find us? Sure, Maura. They can go to thebalancedilemma.com where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. Follow us, rate us, share us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are also available for listening on Apple, iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Please rate us and share us with your friends. Beth, your memoir reads like Steve was much more of a risk taker than you were. Is it still true? Are you Have you become more of a risk taker now? Well, I, I, it depends how you define risk taking. Um, I've been, I, I've traveled a lot. Um, I take risks in different ways, I guess. I mean, he, um, I guess we should tell people. Steve was a pilot on top of the other things, and he had actually right. survived a plane crash 20 years earlier right. where he had his had your children in the car, in the car, in the plane. In the plane, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so right. so were, was that just an example of, you know, being a pilot was a risk, or were there other things he did that were, you would have considered risky, and were they battlegrounds? Um, no, they weren't battlegrounds. And, and his being a pilot... It was a fluke um, with the the plane crash. I mean, it, he was he was a really a, actually quite cautious. He lived his life um, in a way as a risk taker, trying to be earn a living as a sprout man is is kind of a, a an unusual. Yes, it's an unu- unusual <laughs> path. That is absolutely and, true. And he loved and he loved. Like he loved being in the sky, so whether it was hang gliding or flying a plane, um, that was a big part of his life. But it wasn't; they, they were it, that was not risky, um, really. I yeah, I I wouldn't say that. I mean, but I, it's I, it's I, interesting, Beth, because you talk about the sky, and that's actually where you saw him after his death. The hints in the sky that he was around you. Can Bird, you tell right. us about that? Oh, you mean see, the birds? The, the birds, the butterflies. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, others have, have written experiences, too. I mean, some of it, I, I imagine, might be wishful. But I but we I did experience, it's not that he became a hawk. 
um, I mean, I'm, I didn't think, oh, he's now a hawk. But um, at his funeral, um, at the pu- at, there was a flyover at the um, at the burial, and his friends um, at the airport flew over um, to the flyover, and a hawk appeared suddenly and and flew in formation with the planes, um, which was absolutely astonishing um, to all of us who were there because hawks don't generally fly with planes in formation. So, and we did keep seeing red-tailed hawks, yes. So, with your three children, how did this situation affect them? Did you all go on the same path towards recovery or did some suffer it worse than others? Everyone, everyone worked, lives, and, and it's still something that's alive. The, the, the loss, it's seven years, it's not over. The grief is not over. Um, and so they all, have, they all have their different ways of dealing with it. Our daughter is an artist, um, and so a lot of her processing has come out through her art. And, yeah. You referenced Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical mm-hmm. Thinking, which was written after mm-hmm. her husband's death and I think right before her daughter's death. And she wrote, mm-hmm. grief is different. Grief has no distance. Grief comes in waves, para- paroxysms, sudden apprehensions that weaken the knees and blind the eyes and obliterate the dailiness of life. Until now, I had been able only to grieve, not mourn. Grief was passive. Grief happened. Mourning, the act of dealing with grief, required attention. Grief mm-hmm. turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. Do those words resonate with you? And if so, how? Yeah, they, they, they do. I mean, because, because when you're hit with the sudden loss of someone that you love, that happens to you. And I guess, but I would also say grieving, I think grieving itself is an act, is an act in the same way that mourning is. So for me, I would, I would, in that way, link those two ideas. Well, um, let me take it to the more practical. What are things that people should and should not say to somebody who has lost someone close to them? Well, the, the, the first one that comes to mind is they're in a better place. This is meant to be. Um, they'll be watching over you. <laughs> These are the things, I mean, everyone's going to have their own things that will tr- that, that might trigger a reaction um, or that or for me I mean other people might feel that they've been robbed as my therapist had had kept saying for me that made me feel as if I were passive not engaged in an active way with my life and then the way I chose to live it um, so what would you have wanted to hear well I would say most of the people that I was with um, were were present in the way I needed. I mean, there's not much to say, truthfully. I mean, I just I just appreciated people showing up, and and for them to see what was needed and to listen, because what I found incredibly comforting for me and healing was being able to talk about Steve. I mean, that gave me great comfort to talk about him and name him. Yeah. What, those those are helpful words. So we often talk about here a lead parent, you know, the parent who bears the uh, mental load of raising the children. And your situation, you became the lead parent uh, mm-hmm. by not not by choice, by terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. And what was it like before and what was it like after? Did Steve engage with you as a parent and then did you find, uh, you know, the burden uh, doubled uh, after or something else? 
I, I think that the burden in a way doubled because because I would say that Steve was such an engaged father. He was unusual um, amongst the, the people that I knew anyway, men. Um, he loved to cook. He loved to take care of things around the house. He loved to go on outings, be with the children um, in a way that um, uh, hiking with them and things like that. So, but I, I mean, for me, the biggest the biggest um, thing that was a friend of mine who's um, a widower had said that it, uh, he realized he was the only parent suddenly. And it wasn't that he had too much to do. It was that he was their only parent. Did and that cause that- fear? Or yeah. I mean, I'll just share. I had a friend who lost her husband when she had young children. And she, it was a year at least of terror that she was going to get sick and emergency uh-huh. room visits that she, you know, uh-huh. what's wrong with me? I can't, nothing can happen to me. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't say that I was walking around in fear necessarily. I felt very, like I said, I felt, I felt very in, interestingly empowered um, in many ways. But I was also, there was also a part of me that felt maybe this fear. I mean, I just, I did, I did, it, was, it concerned me. I mean, I got my will in order. I had to find, um, you know, who was going to be the executor and all of that. So, yeah, I was aware of it. And there, were there some days that you had to do things you didn't want to do, but that Steve did before and you said, oh, I got to do this because they love it so much. Like, I don't know, bake uh, uh, bar- uh, blueberry pancakes on a Sunday morning with when you sprouts. just, uh, with sprouts. There we go. And no eggs or I think he was a vegan too, but uh, were there things you had to do like that, that you didn't want to do? Yeah, but it, yes, well, I thought you were going in a different direction. I was going to say, yep, I suddenly discovered that we had a septic. Um, <laughs> oh, septic. That flooded like shortly after he died or like, all those little the things around the house. The oil burner went on the fritz. Okay, yeah, things like that. <laughs> so now let's get to the exciting uh, what happened with this book. Um, mm-hmm. Your life was made into a movie, Sproutland. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, that was pretty wild. I, I was boxing, and one of my boxing buddies um, turned out to be Cynthia Wade, who is a, is a she's an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. I didn't know that. I just knew her as my boxing buddy. Um, and she said I would like, she, she read the book. She loved my book. She said, I'm trying to break into narrative fiction um, films, and I'd love to make a film of you, and I want you to star in it. So she made, this was all happening. The book was released. Um, December of 2019, you remember the pandemic hit in March. So I had all kinds of great momentum when the book was released and then everything kind of stopped, which was upsetting. But Cynthia and the film kept going. We worked during the pandemic and um, she ended up with a a 24 minute um, narrative short. She's shown it all around the world. Um, I've won Best Actress for playing a fictional version of me. Hmm. Um, (laughs) That's pretty wild. I have a fake son. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a retelling. It has comedic elements and some of the absurdities of, yeah. Um, That's amazing. Having experience, gone through this experience of grief and coming back through it, and I loved your term, remembering. Um, Remembering. What does balance mean to you now? And is it different different than it was before Steve's death? Um, Balance, you're asking? I'm asking about balance. Um, Well, I I think, um, yeah, I think giving myself time to just be. um, I've always worked very hard. Um, I'm a teacher, and I 
um, overworked, like most teachers, um, but to try to respect boundaries. And, and yeah, it is balance. So to give, to risk, to honor maybe a need to just have one day where I don't do anything or to have a day where I go hiking with a friend. Um, I never used to hike and now I hike. Um, so, um, balance is just uh, between the inner being quiet within myself, but then also going out and, um, seeing friends. What do you think Steve would think of the new you? Oh, I, um, it's a quick answer because I've thought about it a lot. Um, I think he would be very happy. I mean, I think he'd get a kick out of it. He always felt I could be a writer. He always felt I was a good actress. Um, and um, I think he would be really pleased. Um, and also just the way I've been trying to live my life. And I did create a publishing company, too. So it's, uh, yeah, I with the book. And the, and the name of the publishing <laughs> company is? Keats and Company Publishers. And on that I note, yeah. I am Christy Derrico. Thank you for coming on the show, Beth Robbins. And the book is A Grief Sublime, the movie Sproutman. And I'm Maura Carlin. Thank you for joining us.